You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions, plus get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born and raised in Aberdeen, attending Robert Gordon's college, of which Michael Gove is another alumnus. She went on to head south of the border to study at Oxford University St Hilda's College, her subject of choice, PPE. While there, it became clear on what side of politics she lent, playing an active role in student activism, including taking to the streets to protest against tuition fees introduced by the then Labour government. This entailed sleeping in an examination hall as a means of protest. On graduating with a first, politics remained close to her heart. She ran for a number of seats as a Labour candidate before entering the European Parliament in 2014. In 2017, she entered Parliament in Westminster, winning the seat of Oxford East. There, she had a quick promotion. Despite supporting Yvette Cooper in the 2015 leadership race, she agreed to serve as a shadow Treasury Minister under Jeremy Corbyn. It's an experience that placed her in good stead for her most recent promotion under the new Labour leader, Keir Starmer. The first woman to take hold of her brief, were her party to gain power, she would make history as the first female chancellor in the UK. My guest today is the shadow chancellor, Annalise Dodds. Now, did I get anything criminally wrong? No, 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 no. It's all fine. (laughs) I saw you slightly uh, laugh when I mentioned some of your protesting antics. It's a long time ago. Picture me in a leather jacket and that kind of thing. You probably can't really imagine that now. (laughs) I was enjoying looking through the photo gallery earlier that's online of them. Oh, God. Yeah. (laughs) Now, before we get to what you got up to at university, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Now, you were born and raised in Aberdeen, and a question we ask everyone who comes on this podcast is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? We had Rachel Johnson on recently, and she suggests that was a leading question. So so apologies if if you take it as that. Oh, bless you. No, it it definitely was a happy childhood. In fact, I I have to say that I was brought up in Aberdeenshire. So I'm what's known as a chifter in those parts. So very much kind of country bumpkin, as it were. And um, yes, it it really was happy. And yeah, lovely parents, my little brother, who still a lot of contact with. Yeah, sometimes felt a long way away from where I wanted to go out when I was a teenager. I would say that living in the countryside. But no, it was was great. Yeah, I grew up also in Aberdeenshire in Inverory. So I think I can sympathise with that that slightly... Now, your father was an accountant, I understand. Did you have a particularly political upbringing? Was politics discussed much? It wasn't something that we ever particularly talked about in party terms, I would say. But certainly, I guess, I I did have quite a lot of discussions with my dad and with my mum. I say discussions, some people might call them arguments occasionally. I suppose that's what teenagers are like, really. But certainly we, we did talk about what was happening, particularly locally, and our views around that, yeah. Now, you attended, as your secondary school, I believe, Robert Gordon College, which is a private school which also has Michael Gove as as a fellow alumni. Now, I think quite far apart in age, (laughs) I think over 10 years. So I presume at the time you were not aware of who Michael Gove was. The legend no, had not run through. I, I, I wasn't, and I, no, no disrespect to him, but yes, I think we were slightly different generations, but yes, I, I wouldn't kind of labour the point. <laughs> yeah. Did you enjoy your time in that school? I did. I mean, I, I think everybody's different, you know, everybody takes to different models of education quite differently, don't they? I mean, I suppose I 
had quite an independent view of things and you know sometimes that that didn't always fit with the ethos of the school I was also in the the first intake of girls so this was quite a big adjustment having been just boys before so I think that was that was a bit of a kind of culture shock for some so were you outnumbered then boys to girls massively yes which some people would quite like I suppose I guess if I'd been older I would have been very pleased about it probably but when it was um goodness must have been 11 or 12 it was it was quite an adjustment really it's quite funny because our last guest Rachel Johnson she was the only girl at her school because her father Stanley Johnson just made an all-boys school take her (laughs) so in proportion what percentage of girls to boys are we are we talking with you well I remember in the first class they adopted this formation of putting the girls in into each corner of the class I think there might have been one right in the middle as well but so that we couldn't kind of associate with each other I think it's a very different place now I should just say so I'm not I'm not kind of (laughs) making any claims about about how it is now but yeah it was it was also back in the time when there were those kinds of views about education that have changed a lot I would say. Did that mean that you had you grew up with lots of male friends then? Yeah Yeah. that would be right and I had a lot of friends from outside that particular school as well so I, I did a lot of music when I was growing up so I knew a lot of people through that connection as well. What was your instrument of choice? So, and, and I feel really ashamed and embarrassed saying this now because I have not kept it up at all and I'm trying to help my kids and I'm completely useless, but it was the cello and I also did quite a lot of piano and bits of like medieval recorder music and stuff like that. So I was very, I was very into it when I was younger. When you said you were embarrassed, I thought you were going to say recorder. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Which is the instrument, but actually cello is actually very impressive. <laughs> Now, you had a part-time job, am I right to say, as a professional dishwasher? So I had a, I had a number of different jobs, yeah. So I, so I was a, a kitchen porter for a while. So yeah, washing the dishes and taking out bins and that kind of stuff. I also worked as a, a weighbridge operator at a grain store and, and lab technician, without going into the, the reasons for that, but to, to check the kind of composition of stuff that was coming into the grain store. And I've also been a, a waitress, a barmaid... I've been a library assistant. So yeah, I've done kind of a bunch of different things. And obviously I was an academic for a very long time as well. Now, when you were at school, you obviously went to study at Oxford, as we mentioned in the introduction. Did you have your heart set on it from an early age? Did you feel like, I suppose, it was something you were aiming for or did the school point you towards it? What, what kind of drew you there? So I definitely didn't have a kind of clear path marked out in my mind at all. I knew that I really enjoyed some academic work that I was doing in fact I would say most of the advice that I got was why do you want to leave Aberdeen which I'm sure you can appreciate (laughs) Katie because it's such a wonderful place yeah why not just stay here but then also don't apply because there's no chance that you could get in so I didn't really know what I was doing so I kind of applied just off my own bat and you know didn't apply for a particular college or anything like that and so it was yeah a completely different experience when I finally did turn up there because I knew literally nothing about it you know before before I arrived. So when you got that interview I presume you got an interview to get in did you feel a little bit maybe smug's the wrong word but like you know all these people who told me not to bother. (laughs) Yeah I mean quite quite a good way to get me to do something is to say that I'm not going to be able to I would say. (laughs) Yes I suppose I can be a bit strong-willed to that extent but it was it was just such a a privilege genuinely and I, I just feel now and it's, it's something that I felt for for a long time probably something that drew me into organized politics as well I just really wish that you know every young person would 
have the kind of opportunities that I was lucky to have educationally. Now, why did you choose PPE? Because it can get a little bit of a bad rep <laughs> these days. Um, just the number of politicians who have taken it. It's often seen as a degree you do if you're dead set on being a politician. The editor of this magazine actually has a correction course. I'm looking at Cindy, who also studied PPE. Uh, <laughs> for those who study it, because he, he doesn't agree with it as, as a course. So what drew you to it? I simply did the P, I did philosophy. Ah, yeah, I mean, I, d- I did quite a lot of philosophy. That ended up being the, the, the main subject that I focused on, actually, as I went through. And I think I was partly inspired by some of the people who taught me. So there were some absolutely incredible people at Oxford at the time, including one who did end up teaching me, somebody called Cathy Wilkes, who was an absolutely amazing philosopher and woman who incredible life story she she ended up being the secretary to the mayor of Dubrovnik during the siege of Dubrovnik just one of those people who you know you kind of find out what they did and you think that's that's enough to fill kind of three lives of ordinary people really and a number of others like that and I suppose I was inspired by them and I guess I kind of anticipated the intellectual challenge a bit but I was also thinking at that stage that I might be interested to go into somewhere like you know social work or social policy and I did end up doing a master's in social policy once I'd done my first degree. And I mentioned your student activism but I wondered at what point did you I suppose identify with the Labour Party? Was that like a teen thing or was that going to university? Yeah I suppose I did identify with Labour when I was still at home I would say there were some in my family who came from quite a maybe kind of small C conservative, particularly on my my mother's side, you know, people who had had to work extremely hard, actually. And I mean, my, my grandma, she had deafness in one ear because they'd not been able to sort her out at the time, her family and kind of from fishing people where they'd had to work really, really hard. And I, I think there was a kind of aspirational view for for some people from that background that you know the Labour Party you know it's not the Labour Party it'd be more the Conservative Party that people would support you know who'd come from that kind of working class background and then I suppose other parts of my family were more inclined towards Labour I guess my granny I think was but then certainly with my dad I think he went between a whole bunch of different parties when he was voting I don't think he ever supported the Scottish Nationalists but I think sport and a number of other ones at different times pretty far um, <laughs> now when I was looking at the photos earlier online of you back in your student days what I found quite striking is it's not like you're there are quite a lot in them but you're very much at the front <laughs> so you look like you're leading the charge there's some this is a range of different protests but one was against tuition fees which while I think probably people from my generation associate with Lib Dem stories that that was back when Labour introduced them so can you talk us through how you got kind of involved in in that scene (laughs) yeah I mean I I suppose I've always felt you know whatever the issue is if if I think that we need to make a change then I you know I'm I'm not going to kind of hide away you know I will I will be very vocal about it and I guess some of my my kind of earlier experience, particularly experiences of work and, you know, like when I did that job as a kitchen porter, I was on £2 an hour because it wasn't a minimum wage then. And then going to uni and seeing quite how constrained it was socially and the fact that we really needed to open up access and that wasn't happening quickly enough. I still don't think it's happening quickly enough at all. I guess that that did 
mean that I kind of got involved, I suppose, in a more organised way rather than just chuntering about it. But, uh, oh my goodness, some of those pictures, I mean, those leather jackets and things like that, oh, from a long time ago. And was I right to say that you took, that you guys set up in one of the examination halls and like slept in it overnight or what, what was that part of the protest? I think from memory, I mean, you're talking <laughs> over know, 20 sorry, years ago I'm, here. I'm you here. <laughs> I, th- I think. It was related to the introduction of tuition fees and, you know, there there was a lot of concern, as I said, I'm still concerned about this, around what the impact of all of that was going to be on access to higher education. And um, you mentioned that when you got to Oxford, the fact was a bit restrained socially. Was that, by that, do you mean the sense that perhaps it was more privately educated in the state or, or what was it that struck you? Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, I've, I've met a lot of incredibly bright people in my time who've come from a massive range of different backgrounds. And, I mean, I, I ended up kind of latterly as an academic, quite often teaching mature students who were, you know, the, the best students in the class who might not have had formal qualifications, but were absolutely brilliant. And, yeah, I, I still feel that we need to do far more to open up that access you know, I, I know that there's a lot of work going on around that, but I, I suppose I do fear, particularly with everything that's going on now, you know, especially for some of those universities that have been more open, that are challenged financially, I think it's so important that we, we open up access. And I'm presuming from what you previously said that this means that you weren't involved in any of the secret drinking societies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny, actually, I was thinking back, kind of talking to my partner about this, I don't really remember... Ever, but by the way, not because I'd done something that would would have stopped me from yeah. from remembering. But I don't really remember going out all that much. I mean, it sounds like a, a slightly boring student from that point of view. I suppose. We, I mean, we did have kind of parties in each other's houses, yeah. but that was about it. But yeah, definitely no strange antics involving strange. I don't know toasts and that kind of jazz. No, yeah, but actually, you can sleep easily in some conservatives. Then um, <laughs> now you mentioned obviously some of the previous jobs you've held, so you obviously went on to become a lecturer. But at what point did you decide that you wanted to have a career in politics? I would say that for a long time I kind of balanced, I guess, working academically with political engagement. So obviously when, it, when I finished my master's, I decided I wanted to do further research there. And then, you know, I, I really, I absolutely love teaching. You know, I, I love research, particularly interested in kind of comparing countries around how they run their health systems and their economies and that kind of thing. So I really loved researching that for a number of years. But I guess while I was doing that, I was consistently kind of engaged in the Labour Party on the side and well in fact I was assuming that I would be going back to that academic role after the European referendum because you know obviously I I couldn't be an MEP anymore and so I was assuming that I would go back to being an academic but then obviously something different happened you know the sitting MP where I lived decided to stand down and and things changed. Now obviously you were an MEP but just before that you stood in a few seats to be a member of parliament. Now in 2005 you stood for the then constituency of Billericay and that's in Essex so that, in a way, was a no-hoper seat, or what you might call one. I know politicians like to say there's no such thing as a no-hoper seat, but in its history, it never returned anything other than a Tory MP. Uh, you also stood in Reading East, but I wondered, what's it like when you ultimately get a seat where you kind of know you're not going to win? Uh, would you set yourself smaller targets? How do you 
approach the experience of what is a, a likely rejection? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a wonderful experience, genuinely. And, you know, there are people who I met there who really, really respect and learned a lot from. Angela Smith, who's the Labour leader in the Lords now, she was the MP for Basildon then and was, you know, just so generous and friendly. It was really lovely working with her. But, I mean, there, there was a kind of political reason why I wanted to stand there, actually, to the extent that there have been quite strong activity from the British National Party in that constituency. So I really wanted to work with our particular local council candidates to make sure that we didn't get, you know, representation from them in that area. And we we managed to achieve that. So, you know, from that point of view, I felt it was a kind of positive experience managing to to keep them out, really. So then you stood for Reading East. You also stood for Oxford Council. And I've mentioned three things that didn't go quite... (laughs) how you might have planned because you didn't win an election. Is there any point in that where you're thinking, oh God, why am I doing this? Yeah, I mean, actually the the story about the local council is quite amusing because it was, it came just at the end of my final exams. So it was that year, I'm sure people would remember when the elections got postponed because of foot and mouth disease. So they were kind of just, I think they were maybe just the day after the end of my exams or something. So, you know, all my friends were kind of, partying and I was kind of delivering leaflets I borrowed the, the, the kind of local secretary's bike and going around delivering leaflets instead but I, I thought I had no chance of winning and it was actually my, my current partner who'd persuaded me to stand saying look I don't think you've got any chance of winning here we just need to find somebody and then at the end of the day I came quite close to being the Liberal Democrat so it was quite a a stressful count, I have to say, when I was thinking, oh my goodness, I might actually end up winning this one and being a councillor in Oxford. So, yeah, interesting. <laughs> Would you have had to move? Or did you know? Well, I, you see, by that point, I was set to be moving somewhere else uh, okay. to do my master's degree. So I, I would have had to cancel that and decide to do something completely different. <laughs> so you yeah. break the news to your <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Now, you entered European Parliament, so that was your next successful election. What was that like? I mean, did you, did you A, expect to win, and clearly you had to move your life, so... What was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, I I didn't move our home. So we, yeah. we, you know, stayed based in Oxford all the time. Clearly, the constituency was extremely big. So all of the southeast of England, population size of Austria is within one constituency. So the, the big challenge there was actually get, getting around, making sure that I could get through to, you know, Isla White and Dover and, and up to Milton Keynes, that kind of thing. I mean, the first question around, you know, how did that, how did that happen? Did I expect to win? I mean, actually, with the... EU elections as they were of course you know everything's obviously changed now but the, the real contest in a lot of areas was around the party lists so who would end up being at the top of the list so we had a whole I think it was about a whole year really of kind of contestation trying to persuade local Labour members to support me in the southeast region and you know very very honoured when I when I ended up winning that selection really. Did you always have your heart set on being an MP in Westminster? No I, re- I really didn't yes I never I never had that that kind of grand plan that some people seem to have and actually with the European election I hadn't anticipated that was something I was going to do and I was kind of asked if I would be willing to stand and at that stage I was pregnant and not very many people knew that I was pregnant, so it just felt like a, an enormous mountain that I couldn't climb. I hadn't worked in, I don't know, any of the European Union institutions or anything like that before. But my partner, 
said to me, well, you keep complaining about, you know, what, what, what's going on kind of between Britain and Europe and all this kind of thing and how it's communicated. Why don't you actually do something about it? So I thought, OK, fine, I'll put myself forward. So, yes, it wasn't. And, and kind of ditto with with Oxford East, which I'm really delighted to represent now. I mean, we're kind of close friends with the sitting MP and I hadn't anticipated that he was going to stand down. It was quite a big surprise, actually. But when he did, I thought, well, you know, this is my home. I really love this place. Kind of felt like I, I knew a lot of the challenges that it had as well as the positives. And so, yeah, really wanted to put myself forward for it. Now, you won that seat and you entered Parliament and you were quite quickly promoted. <laughs> did, did you expect to be moving up the ranks or did you? what was your strategy? Were you going to like keep your head down for a few years or, or were, you, were you striving for Shadow Cabinet? Yeah, I, I, I feel like I'm maybe not matching up to the, the title of this podcast, Katie, I'm afraid. <laughs> but again, there was, no, there was no kind of master plan. Uh, I think there's something very impressive about things just happening. They're about you having to do anything, so it's actually quite ballsy. Yeah. Oh bless you! Oh well, good if I do if I do fit in from from that respect. I, mean, I suppose I I mean I I really wanted to keep working on a number of the issues that that I had been focused on previously. So I remain concerned about a lot of issues in relation to taxation. You know the fact that there's still in my view really quite high levels of tax avoidance and evasion and I did a lot of work on that when I was a member of the European Parliament and also around regulation of financial services trying to prevent a rerun of the global financial crisis so I certainly wanted to continue working on those issues as well as obviously working really hard for my constituents I mean actually there's kind of interesting because we've got organisations like Oxfam in Oxford East, there's a lot of concern around much of that anyway. Yeah. Now, it was Jeremy Corbyn and you were asked to serve as a shadow Treasury Minister. What went through your mind when you were asked? Because clearly it was a time where the Labour Party was in a position where there, were, there was disagreement within the party over whether people should be supporting Jeremy Corbyn. We knew from when he first took on the leadership, lots of people didn't stand, then people quit. Now, it's 2017, so we're a bit past some of that. But did, did you have to think about it? Because you supported Yvette Cooper in 2015. So on paper, you're not a, you know, you're not the, the natural Corbynite, perhaps, that you saw some of in, in his team. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I, I often frustrate people because I'm not part of any faction you know I've always viewed myself as just Labour that's why I'm I'm just Labour and you know I, I really want the Labour Party to succeed and that's far more important to me than any different faction within the party so when I, I was asked if I'd be willing to do that job and as I say I mean it was a lot of it was around work that I'd already focused on that I, I really care about I was I was really pleased to be asked to be honest yeah, didn't have to think about it. And was everyone nice to you for doing it? Or did anyone say, oh, you don't name names? But I mean, did you get any backlash in the party for, for being in the Shadow Cabinet? Well, I, what, I wasn't in the Shadow Cabinet. Oh, sorry, you, sorry, you Shadow promoted Minister. me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're getting done to Shadow Cabinet. You know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, actually. I suppose the party was in a bit of a better place because it was post the 2017 election, but I think there was a little bit more unity around Jeremy Corbyn because of what had just happened in that election, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I, I don't have anything to compare yeah. it to, you know, because I'd just come in at that stage. Yeah. And, you know, certainly my approach is I, I want to work with people, you know, different members of the Parliamentary Labour Party, whatever tradition they come from, because I think we're, we're far more successful when we're unified. So Now I'm going to move on to the actual shadow cabinet. So I guess <laughs> right. Now, Keir Starmer becomes Labour leader. You supported him early on in his leadership campaign and you were made shadow chancellor. Now... What I want to know is, 
Shadow Chancellor is clearly a very competitive role. Lots of people would love to be Shadow Chancellor. Do you have to put your name in? Do you have to tell people <laughs> that you're interested? What's like the etiquette of going through, you know, obviously a shadow, but a great office of state. I mean, what goes on behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean, not a lot in terms of, I mean, I certainly wasn't, I don't know, kind of lobbying or anything like that at all. And of course, it was a really quite strange time all round because, you know, contrary to what would have been the normal situation with a, a leadership election, you know, obviously Keir couldn't kind of give a speech to mass ranks of people because we were in the, the height of the initial lockdown. You know, all these discussions were taking place over the phone rather than in person. So, it, it, yeah, it, it was kind of a bit of a, a weird time, I think, for, for everyone. I mean, of course, nothing compared to what, what people are going yeah. on, going through in, in the country at that point. But, but very unique circumstances. Yeah. Um, so how did it happen? Did he, did he call you up? Were you surprised? <laughs> yes, he, he called me up. And Are I, you talking I, audio phone or did you get a video call? <laughs> Just an ordinary one. I don't yeah. think it was WhatsApp or anything like that. It's just as well because my reception's rubbish. And we just we just ha- had a chat, you know. So I was obviously really, really pleased to be asked. And I, I was, you know, it kind of goes without saying, probably I was really, really delighted that he was elected because I think he's, you know, the kind of leader that Labour Party needs right now. Were you surprised when, you, when he asked you? I suppose I was pleasantly surprised because I certainly hadn't planned for that at all. So, yeah. Do you have to act cool on the phone when you get something like that? <laughs> Sorry, not to, I'm just wondering because when I've, you know, promotional thing, like, I feel like you've got to act like, and then, and then obviously you leave and you can uh, celebrate with people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I obviously, I was, re- I was really pleased. I, w- yeah. I was very, very pleased to be, to be given that privilege. So yeah, I was very, very happy about it. Now, one of the reasons people say, and you touched on study, people say that you got the role, the wisdom, is that you are a unifier, you're someone who lots of people in the party like. Why do you think you were appointed? Oh, goodness. Well, it's probably better to ask others that question, really, rather than me. I mean, I, I suppose I'd, I'd had that experience previously. And, you know, I, I'd worked well, I hope, with Keir previously and with a number of other people within the party and, you know, I hope my, my values are those that I, I think we need to be based on as we rebuild and hopefully eventually come into government, you know, in terms of being focused on people's living standards and making sure there's an economy that, that works for people. So, yeah, maybe a combination of things, but I guess, as I say, better to ask others about that rather than me. Now, as you say, you've entered at a really unique time. You're also the first woman to ever hold this post. Another unique situation you have, which I think uh, probably some of your shadow cabinet colleagues don't envy, is if you look at polls, you're going up against the most popular politician in the country right now, <laughs> and it's a Tory chancellor. <laughs> and I think that's, that's quite rare in, if you look at, you know, recent political history. So is it particularly challenging when you're coming at replies knowing that that person has had a lot of public support for talking about Rishi Sunak? Not particularly, I don't think. I mean, obviously, we're in circumstances of still an emergency situation in our country. And to be completely honest with you, if he does well and takes the right decisions... I'd be far happier, but, you know, I don't really care if that makes him popular, if he's actually doing the right thing. You know, I'd rather, to that extent, that he succeeds, obviously, rather than that he fails. I mean, I I do think there are a number of areas where the wrong decisions have been taken and I've not held back from making that clear. But, yeah, I think this is a 
about a lot more than different personalities, I would say. Both you and Rishi Sunak within your parties, I think, are praised by colleagues of being very civil politicians. So I was wondering, have, have the two of you struck up any kind of, did he congratulate you when you got your role? I remember we, we had a couple of phone calls soon after when I came in. I felt a little bit bad because I ended up dragging him into the Commons on his birthday, which he probably didn't really appreciate very much. But he did need to come in. <laughs> to talk about what was going to happen with the furlough scheme back then. So, yes, I mean, again, I think that to me it's, it's, it's about the policies rather than the personality. And talking about policy, obviously it's still the early stages for Kistama's leadership for your time as Shadow Chancellor. So, And also it's this constantly fluid situation in terms of coronavirus, which means it's actually probably quite hard to flesh out exactly what Labour's economic policy is right now. But I just wanted, I suppose, a few things. One is there is this consensus forming in a way that you know we have historically low borrowing rates if you look at the levels of borrowing by the chancellor i think it's enough to make quite a lot of fiscal conservatives want to cry <laughs> there, aren't, there aren't that many left at the moment and there is a concern in some quarters that you know if you keep it up at this point we're going to get to a point when the, the markets might panic you know you, you get into a problem territory um and i was just wondering is, is that a concern you share or are you of the view which you hear particularly from economists on the left that actually there isn't such a problem borrowing in the long term you know that you can do that Yeah, I mean, obviously, right now, we have very low interest rates. And the really critical question for the UK right now is how we can preserve economic capacity, because obviously, it's been reduced very significantly, losing lots and lots of jobs, lots of businesses going to the wall. So the core task to deliver now is to try and build that economic capacity back up again. And I think, you know, there's there's a lot more that can be done in a targeted way to deliver that. I think the other thing that needs to be done is to use public money wisely. And I would argue that actually the size of that debt has been increased in some cases unnecessarily, you know, £12 billion on test, trace and isolate contracts that aren't working, for example. So I think it's about the allocation as well as about the overall quantum of debt. But, you know, ultimately, you know, I'm not one of those people who would say, well, we can necessarily be relaxed about this forever because we don't know what will happen with the interest rate in particular it could well change you know we don't want to be in the long term in a situation where there could be risk from that quarter that would put pressure on government's ability to deliver services so I'm, I'm not somebody who would say oh, that's no problem at all no quite quite the opposite I think we do need to be prudent but as I say we've got to be I would say focused on, you know, the public money that is going out of the door right now and whether that's always targeted in the right direction as well as about these longer term fiscal questions. Do you think the chance is being prudent at the moment? In some areas, no. So I think we've seen in a number of cases a kind of dawning realisation of different problems, particularly unemployment levels and quite a panicked last minute response so arguably we saw that with the announcement around job retention bonus which is going to come in in January loads of businesses will get it who would have taken staff back anyway about 2.7 billion pounds that looks like it will go to businesses that would have taken staff back anyway not a good use of, of public funds could have had a much more targeted approach so obviously I've been doing what I can to try and shift government into that more targeted approach And then I would say as well on some of the really big contracts, they're really not delivering. And, you know, we we can have quoted at us, as I just mentioned, all the time we keep being told, oh, well, you know, 12 billion going into test, trace and isolate. But actually in lots of parts of the country, it's just not delivering and they need to get a grip on it. 
Do you think we could get, a, and obviously this is a hypothetical and I realise these are the most annoying types of questions, <laughs> but do you think we could get to a point on the, I mean, you're talking about misspending, not focused enough, but also the level of spending we're looking at where we could potentially in a year or two see, a, you know, a Labour shadow chancellor turning around to the Tories and saying, your spending is irresponsible. Well, I think the, the key question is whether it's focused at preserving that economic capacity or otherwise. And... That's where I, I do have concerns about the current approach. I mean, we're we're kind of recording this podcast in the last month of the, the furlough schemes. It's going to be switched off the end of the month. There's a new scheme to take over from that. Every study seems to suggest it's not going to be doing very much to keep people in work. And, you know, the problem with that is that once those jobs have gone and those businesses have gone bust, it's very, very expensive to get it all going again. It takes a really, really long time. So I think having that much longer term view of thinking well you know what do we actually have to do to preserve that economic capacity is really important and try try not to have these kind of panicked last minute announcements I think that's that's been very unhelpful it doesn't lend to good policy making I'd say and I suppose just a final one or two on that was just the chance to talk about you know jobs that are no longer viable and the net sort of seems to be expanding a bit on what non-viable jobs are with you know new restrictions so so I just wondered is your sense, if you're looking ahead in terms of coronavirus and the economy, that we're in a period of turbulence and actually a lot of these jobs will be there if we just give it long enough, we'll be able to bounce back? Or, or I suppose, are you closer to the Rishi Sunak's view, which seems to be more, you know, lots of these jobs are not really coming back, or at least they won't be coming back for such a long period. You can't have uh, support for them, in, uh, you know, in the next six months yet. Yeah, I mean, quite often the government's argument seems to collapse into anyone who's lost their job didn't have a viable job. And I think that's quite a weird way of looking at it, to be honest with you. Now, I mean, there is going to be change in the UK economy. There was a lot of change happening anyway, and it's been accelerated through this crisis. The move to online services, for example, means that a lot of people's jobs are changing very radically and some jobs are being lost in some of those sectors. So there was going to be change there. But we have others. And, you know, I think I feel, in fact, I'm not going to say that I feel sorry for them because it does underline this really critical point. But, you know, with that whole case around the ballerina who was pictured, exactly, where in that case, we're talking about someone who has very, very specialised skills, probably built up over a number of years. I've not heard anyone saying they don't believe that there will be any future for the performing arts in our country. In fact, before this crisis, a lot of people were saying we need to do more to support them because it's such a big part of our exports. So, as I say... That was a 2019 advert, wasn't it? Which somehow resurfaced. Yeah, I think the picture, there's been all this kind of... (laughs) Struck a chord with some people, but I think that's that's been the kind of concerning thing, that government hasn't put in place those mechanisms to enable people to keep their relationship with their employer especially where they've got those embedded skills where we know those jobs will be needed into the future but, but I would say also there's then not enough enough support in a targeted way for those people who've already lost their jobs so you know the kind of retraining program most of that isn't coming on stream until next April by that point a lot of people will have been out of work for over a year and so there's a lot more that can be done to help people who, who have fallen out of work as well as to help people keep their work. Now, I've got very few final questions one just being you talked about funds that you know, perhaps being misallocated or could be used better. And one of Labour's big things they're pushing at the moment is free school meals being extended. When you look at the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, 
do you, do you think that money would have been used better on free school meals or is that a false comparison? Yeah, I mean, we, we have been saying to government that they need to, to look into how they could support the hospitality sector. But at the time of the announcement of that programme, we did say, well, look, to have a sustainable impact, they needed to deal with what was impacting on demand in the first place. And that's the fact that we don't have test trace and isolate working in the UK, in the way that it is in lots and lots of other countries, when you get that sorted out, you get many more people going into restaurants and cafes because, you know, put kind of bluntly, they're not they're not worried about doing that. They're not worried about the health situation. So dealing with that actually is really the only sustainable way. You know, incentives w- will potentially have an impact, but actually, you know, <laughs> those restaurants needed to be able to function through Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday as well. And and they still need to be functioning, of course, now, you know, September's a really difficult month for a lot in the catering trade anyway. So I, th- I think that, you know, on its own, in many respects, that scheme hasn't really done enough to ensure that we preserve jobs. Third final question, which is just, we're talking about indefinite borrowing and obviously the fact that it's unsustainable so the IFS have talked about tax rises the Labour position I mean is it fair to say I mean previously there was discussion of a wealth tax but it kind of got kicked back should taxes fall on the highest earners is is, is that what you think Labour's economic policy will resemble roughly yeah I mean we'll obviously determine our policies yeah. towards taxation in the run-up to the next general election, as we always would do, that's kind of aiming towards 2024. I mean, I actually think that the kind of shadow boxing that we've seen within the government over some of these issues and, you know, whether they're going to slam the brakes off on, sorry, with either cuts to spending or tax increases and do that quite soon. I think that's been quite damaging, actually. I think that's damaged confidence in the short term. You know, the, the vast majority of economists would say, and I agree with them, that the focus right now has got to be on economic capacity. You know, we can all talk about how we're going to tax the tax base, but if the tax base is shrinking, then the best thing that you can do is try and stop it from shrinking. That's what's most important for the future. Now, penultimate thing I wanted to ask was just, there's lots of reports about, you know, who's going up and who's going down in Westminster. <laughs> and I, I already get the impression that you're not particularly interested in, in, in that side of it. But, you know, people say, oh, um, is the shadow cabinet here permanently... You know, there might be one before the next election. You know, some say, oh, there could be a new, you know, change of shadow chancellor, shadow foreign secretary, all those things occasionally in pieces. So I just wondered, do you plan on being chancellor after the next election? Is that your plan? Well, I mean, I'd I'd obviously love to do it. And I want Labour to, for me, the most important thing is that Labour is in power and I want Keir to be our Prime Minister because I think he'd do an excellent job of it. So I'd obviously love to play a part in that. If I can stay a shadow chancellor, that'd be fantastic. But if I can't, equally, you know, so long as I can support in other ways, that's what's really important to me. But, you know, I, I certainly... I'm really hungry, I suppose, to do what I can to particularly change the economic situation for families and communities. I think, you know, we've seen living standards slip for so long. Something's got to be done to change that. And I want to play my part in that. Perhaps for being the first ever female chancellor. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, is a question we ask everyone on this podcast, which is just, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? We've had a range of answers over the the years now. It's been going on a while, this podcast. Uh, From, you know, uh, haircuts and not being told to answer back to to other things. So so what is your one? Ooh, I mean, I've I've had quite a few candidates, actually, for this, I must say. Um, Probably from things, advice that I've given to others as well that, that hasn't rung true. I suppose some of the careers advice that I received when I was a lot younger was quite interesting. So I I do remember when I was at primary school, 
when at that point I thought, oh, it might be quite interesting to be a doctor or something like that. And I remember being told, oh, yes, you could try and be a nurse. And that was quite interesting. I mean, I would hope that things have moved on a bit now. I'm sure that they have in schools, career services. And, you know, it's probably partly a generational thing. But I do remember, even although I was quite young then, thinking, that's interesting. But why is he said to the other boy who was saying that as well, something very different? That wasn't very good advice. Thank you, Annalise. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. If you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any of our many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. You can subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for only £12 for our print and online editions. Plus, get six months of digital access free to The Telegraph. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash telegraph.